Greetings, listeners. A content warning. This episode contains candid conversation regarding the nature and existence of certain holiday characters known for their jolliness. Parents may not wish to listen with their children within earshot. I hope you enjoy. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. <laughs> um, Wait, should we watch it before we cast? That's the question. <sighs> What's it? Oh, Silence by Shusako Endo. Silence, who's directed by Martin Scorsese with Liam Neeson as the priest who apostatizes and the dude who played the new Darth Vader in the new Star Wars Mm -hmm. is Andrew Garfield's compadre that goes out and finds Liam Neeson as well. It honestly, I mean, it's been on my heart and on my mind for a while and I mean, it it begs many, many difficult and deep and challenging questions. But mm-hmm. I don't know how the movie will be. That trailer gets my blood pumping. Dude. Really? Yeah. Well, that right. book that book is unbelievable. Have we all read the book? Not read the book. I read it a I, while ago, so I don't remember all the details. But I remember it <clears throat> leaving me in kind of a funk for days. Yeah, I read it over CPE and... Gosh, there was a lot of <laughs> why, dude. You should have been reading, Gosh. reading like Hello Kitty or something to cheer you up. Yeah, no, Anything. I should have. I read a book, Canticle for Leibowitz. Did you ever read that? Oh, that's a great book. I love that book, man. You were reading. That was my reading list of like first theology. Somebody, I asked a priest, like, what should I? What should, books do I have to read? And he gave me Walker Percy. You must have talked to the same guy, Walker Percy. Uh, Lost in the Cosmos, which I started and didn't finish, but Shusako Zendo's Silence, uh, Canical for Leibowitz. Um, now I can't remember the others, but those three were definitely on this list. So, yeah, so it was great it was a very well, it was a very real book for me because the experience that I was going through with CPE which was Leibowitz or Silence? No, Silence. Okay, was talking to a god who was not responding, mm-hmm. and. So everything that Chisako Endo was saying about like the challenges of being a missionary mm. with a voiceless God, he's like, yeah, he knows God. Like right. this is a real, he's experienced this. So in the end, when he freaking drops these bombs on you, like this SOB mm. betrayed me. Yeah. He betrayed me because the end, I don't, I don't really agree with in a lot of ways. I kind of reject. Um, but the rest of the book, yeah, it was just very challenging. Personally, I think theologically as well. Well, yeah, it seemed like the conclusion was kind of... And from the outset, I think in the foreword of the preface, he said as much that Christianity... It seemed to me like he was saying Christianity was sort of essentially European and therefore couldn't... It was kind of like oil and water with East Asian culture. And so that's why these missionaries go to Japan and they they can make inroads and like make converts, but... It will never take hold as a cultural force the way it did in Europe. Right. Um, and that's why there was such staunch resistance. And man, some of the torture that. I mean, so that like the idea that you're not going to just torture the priest to get everybody to turn away, um, but to torture the priest by torturing his converts in front of him. That's like another level of twisted. You know, it's one yeah, thing to dude, send. It's one thing to send down. Felicity and Perpetua to the lions for believing in Jesus, but it's another thing to subject a spiritual father to the to the agony of his spiritual children. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, don't don't say any more. Okay, but legitimately, if y'all would be if y'all would be down with it, like it's a two minute trailer. It's very good, and if y'all want to watch it right now, sure, I'll I would not. Up. Would not be opposed to that. I'm game. All right. I, I finished. Uh, I finished Lord of the Rings this morning. By the way, too. If you wanted to. Wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well done. Relax. We'll see how it turns out, man. Whoa. Mm-hmm. How long is that book? Not very long. Uh, yeah, it's not long days. at all. It's okay. Not long at all. No more than I'd say two fifty. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's um. When's that movie come out? I haven't seen a date for it. Gobble up that book, though, dude. I would be curious okay. to hear Juice's thoughts on it. Do you have it, Matt? It's at home. Okay, no problem. This ebook, the for- it, man. Yeah, I think I might. I have it on Audible. Made my dad listen to it. I was in a phase, dude. I can hear my own echo through your computer. Do you guys, are you guys close to the computer with your mics? Uh, Here. what if we turn it? Are down? you in yeah. Juice's room, by the way? No, we're in Mess's room. Okay. Um, Is that better? Let me check. Yeah, it's better. Um, what was I gonna say? I w- I got into a phase of just reading what I kind of called like hero priest books. So some of my favorites were um, Power and the Glory, Silence. Mm -hmm. I really liked (laughs) Under the Shadow of His Wings, I think it was called. Oh, that's a great book. You ever read that? Yeah. I'd read years before, but I reread He Leadeth Me by Chizek. Okay. Priest Block, which was the book about the guys in Dachau, the priests in Nazi Germany. Hmm. I can't remember if there are any more, but yeah, these guys, priests in high pressure situations of unfriendly territory, mm-hmm. just got in a mood and I read voraciously. I, and I think it was first theology or second theology, I can't remember, but hmm. it was a phase. Now I mostly read fantasy and things about dwarves and elves and things like that. You like the elves, dude. <laughs> Just say I gotta say I did. I got into it at the end. I really got into Lord of the Rings at the end. Those books are good, man. Yeah, yeah, they really are good. I, I don't. I still don't love the genre, and I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't feel any pull to read Hobbit or Cimmerillion or anything else. But um, I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I did. I copious notes yeah, no. on the back page of like things to go back to. I would agree that I I don't particularly honestly I've read I did go back and I didn't even go back I never read Narnia as a kid and I think I've said this before but I started I think my first year with Focus I started I had never read Narnia or Lord of the Rings and I've read them all now I think I finished Lord of the Rings this particular yeah earlier this year um, and like that genre. I don't even know what you would call it, but I don't have like a pull towards either or honestly even like a pull to go and read them again. But I have found that both uh, both Narnia and um, Lord of the Rings have deeply impacted my prayer life. Mm. Like if nothing else, I'm very confident Lewis and Tolkien were very prayerful men Mm. like certain images that they used and like how they would write have really helped me like capture some of the. I don't know, just like stuff going on in my heart, I feel I feel like. Well, but. I can say this, that reading that book probably affect more than most books, affected my imagination. Yeah, exactly. My emotion, my dreams even. You know, it just gets you in a different place psychologically where your imagination is more... I, I'm glad I never watched the movies, and I kind of think I never will. Um. Uh, because I was able, because of that, I was able to imagine it myself, you know, even though there, yeah. was, a, there was a lot of extended parts where I'm like, I don't even know what the hell you're saying, dude, about yeah. these mountains and whatever. <clears throat> and I, I did find myself re- referencing some of the maps in the book, being like, mm. where, where the heck are oh, these? Oh, yeah. You know, mm. but even then I still couldn't figure out. I kind of had a general sense of like bad places to the southeast, shires up to the northwest, and there's a C, but it was man, really good, really great ending. I, you know, after reading a thousand pages, I want a good ending. Yeah. And I thought it was a really good ending. And yeah, I was also a- amazed that no one had ever spoiled it for me. I can't wow, believe that, that no one is amazing. No one ever spoiled like the really true climax of what happens in the end, and therefore I won't. But are, are really rep- worth getting okay. it. Really worth yeah. getting to the end. Yeah, that actually is pretty amazing that no one has ever spoiled the ending for you. Seriously, it's from like the 70s, dude. When yeah. when was that book written? Oh, no, way before then, I'm pretty sure. 60s? 
50s. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think it would be no. Well, he may have written it in the fifties. Yeah, really? yeah. I, think, I don't know. I um, it may have been the fifties. Well, his son. It's a pretty interesting story how it came around because his son ended up, um, like working as the editor for a lot of it, and there was a lot of prints and reprints, and so, like within Super Lord of the Rings nerds, to to get like the original. This is what he actually wrote type deal because a lot of different uh, publishing companies printed things that were a little bit different um so it has you know it has its own legends and misprints around it but Mm -hmm. i i will say at the very end if yeah i think i know what you're talking about um because i had seen the movies before i read them and that's not how the movies end the movies end differently really yeah and then the books and so I still hold my my favorite part is when Faromir finds Frodo and Sam randomly. Mm-hmm. Like that's still my favorite part of the whole trilogy, and it's only it's probably like a chapter. It's probably ten pages or something. But the I and I had heard somebody had told me how the books end before I read them, and so honestly I was kind of dreading it because I didn't think it would be very exciting, yeah. like how it would end. And I remember when I finished it. It like it totally changed how I saw the entire story, yeah. and I, I said the same thing. I was like, "That is, that was probably the most brilliant part of, like, the books needed that ending, yeah, mm-hmm. to, um, to be what they were, yeah. Anyway, and so I was, I was like blown away with surprised by the ending. Yeah. I guess, yeah, the ending in the books I think is particularly better. There are aspects of the movie that I think are done better than the book. Particularly the scene when in it's in the two towers, when the king of Rohan is is like possessed by Wormtongue. Yeah, by Wormtongue, aka Sauron, mm-hmm. using Wormtongue as an instrument. I'm stoked right now. Sar- uh, it Saruman. What's that? Saruman was using Wormtongue, right? Well, Saruman was being used by Sauron. Right. Yeah. And, and now so I, I should just go. Should I just go play Dungeons and Dragons or get some magic cards or what? Because now I know all these names. Dude, modesty, modesty. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go all the way in and start wearing wolf t-shirts and grow a ponytail. Um, but when he draws that poison, when Gandalf draws the poison out of that out of the king, mm-hmm. that in the movie, that's done very very well. But yeah, there are times when Tolkien is going on and on. Oh and you're my like, gosh, you're just like, get what? on with it, bro. <laughs> get on with it. What about what about the guy Tom Bombadil? I do. I Tom still Bombadil? don't get that. What I, I mean, don't I don't either. He's a great mystery. He's thought, a great mystery my, in the Lord of the Rings world. My feeling was, I, this is my temptation to always allegorize, was that Gandalf was the son and Bombadil was the father. I, I, but I don't think that that's right because. In the preface, to, at least to the edition I had, he sort of badmouths allegories, which well, is funny was... to me because he was buddies with Lewis and Narnia is such an obvious allegory. And that's what I love well, about it is that, like, I just match up the lion is Jesus, you know, the witch is the devil. And it's like obvious, all of this allegorical stuff. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, it was like, you're making a whole new parallel universe. No one's praying there's not even Christmas. It's Yule in the Shire when they celebrate yeah. Christmas. So it's like this whole other universe where our stuff, our worldview doesn't uh, obtain. But in the same, but like there's a line that I highlighted that right and wrong haven't changed. You know, like so he's having some argument with some king about, you know, the times are different now. And he's like, well, right and wrong never change. Something like that. And so to me, that's that's kind of what it is. It's like, nobility courage virtue love mercy those things are true across universes but middle earth or whatever it is is a completely different universe you know yeah no i that's like the one story i know from the inklings which is like tolkien and lewis's group is that tolkien tolkien was like adamant about how much he disliked narnia because it was allegory hmm and so if if there's one and I think he would like openly say that to Lewis because they would read each other's stuff. And so I thought the same I thought literally the same thing when I first read about Bombadil and his character. If if it's not allegory, like what is what yeah, what is he? Yeah. I guess. What is Bombadil? 
I and like him. He's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's yeah. certainly like wisdom in his in his character. Um and and plays like a fairly crucial role really mm-hmm. in his own in his own way. But but that, I, don't I know. think that's what people like what about Tolkien and why why he's read so widely by Christians and not Christians alike even though he he's so steeply or steeped in Catholicism. Right. Is that it's just like as far as I understand he kind of invented this whole fantasy where I don't I don't think he invented the idea of elves, but maybe I don't even know. But like he he was the first to do this long extended description of different worlds and yeah kind of bizarre possibilities of of different the, things happening the yeah. only other thing i think that i remember like hearing about him somebody told me one time was that he was also adamant that like not only was lord of the rings not an allegory but it, he did not write it with like any intention to be an apologetic for Catholicism. He mm-hmm. wrote it as a story, and right. that was it. Yeah, and and in that way, it's it's kind of beautiful, and it reminded me a lot of Chesterton in the sense of I can't remember if it was orthodoxy where he said that kind of in defense of fairy tales, like he believes in fairy tales still as an adult. Do you know what I'm talking about? You guys' Wi-Fi isn't great. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Okay. Um, but I was thinking about this, uh, particularly this week. My nieces and nephews were up for Thanksgiving with my brother and his wife from Dallas, and they're not going to be around for Christmas this year because <clears throat> it's a it's a haul for them, and uh, we're not going to make it down there. So uh, Santa Claus came and visited us on Friday after Thanksgiving. And had presents for all the kids. Dude, what a guy. That's I awesome. Know. Super good guy. <laughs> and uh, so my niece, uh, she got some troll dolls. I guess there's a new troll movie. Are you aware of this? Yeah. I, everything today is just a reboot. My goodness, dude. Can't they think of anything new? So well, anyway, there's a troll movie and she gets these dolls and they're trolls. And I'm opening for Santa Claus is long gone. He just kind of came in, you know, he had his stuff to take care of. It's November for crying out loud. He's busy, but yeah, he's got that get at that sleigh working. Yeah. And, uh, I can't believe he found time for, for our family, but it's the kind of guy the he elves, is. Mm-hmm. The elves probably made a mess while he was gone. Exactly. Elves, so my they're niece mischievous. goes, dude, they're notoriously mischievous. Notorious. Even though Santa is technically an elf, isn't he? What the? What, the, what are, are you? you dude, heard, you take that back. I thought he was Papa Elf. What? I'm not a. I'm not a completely cognizant of his pedigree, but I think that Santa is the eldest elf. No. Okay. Well, that's just your opinion, bro. No, it's a fact. He's what not an elf. What is he? About? Is he a He's man? Not an elf. He's got regular ears, dude. Everyone knows that's how you tell if someone's an elf or not, and he's. What? A normal-sized human being with a big beard and a huge gut. He's a man? What? Hey, of course he's a yeah, man. He's a man. Okay. I mean, he's, he's a little bit more than a man because he's Santa, but yeah, he's a man. You got me Googling, is Santa an elf? Do not put that on me. You did that. One of the most common Google entrants is Santa an elf or a human. <laughs> uh, History of Santa Claus, the North Pole. So anyways, my uh, my niece says to me, as we're opening her troll doll, she just looks at me and she goes, Santa is so nice. <laughs> I was just like, and my dad was sitting there drinking his espresso or something after dinner. And we kind of kind of smirked at each other. And I just I, like that somehow that line really stuck with me. I was talking to Derek about this today. And I don't even know what I think about it. But it got me thinking about the whole Chesterton Tolkien fairy story thing and i'm like you know what it really is true it's an indisputable fact that santa is nice okay whatever else you may say about the truth of his existence on the north pole or his ability to visit russian kids and you know australian kids in the same night he is nice kids know it we know it we recognize him when we see him like there is a certain plane of existence that santa claus is on that is very real 
And I am completely comfortable as an adult talking about him to children in the in the real sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I'm I'm firmly in that camp yeah. as well. And I know certain people who are not I in that too. camp. And mm-hmm. I I think I just go with Chesterton and, and Tolkien on this. Like Tolkien wrote these le- you know, Santa Claus wrote these letters to Tolkien's kids for years. Have you ever seen those? There's a whole book of them. Yeah, I, I have that book. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yep. Which he illustrated as well, right? Yep. Yeah. And there was like a polar bear that was like really mischievous. Yeah, there was all these stories the, that yeah. happened to Santa. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's why, man, when you get a, a mind, really an imagination like Tolkien or Lewis, because in Tolkien, all of his like Middle Earth, <laughs> I would say they're like unintentional allegories. So he just writes and creates this world based off of his studies. I think he was a philologist. Mm-hmm. So he studied language. And he is not like he was at it. He and he hated when people tried to make direct analogies, like you said with the the inklings. He despised that about Lewis's works. Like it's almost too obvious. Mm-hmm. He just simply created a world that was it. It was irremovable from Christianity because yeah. he was writing from such from a mind that was so Christian, and so everything that he crafts is through that worldview. Even in another world, it's, it's like. It, instead of allegory, he writes in myth almost. It's right. Like, that's uh, it. That's it, dude. The myth. Yeah, it's not. It's not allegory. It's like not, Genesis. Like yeah, Genesis is a myth. It's a myth. The Genesis right. story is a myth, but that does not mean it's not true. Exactly. Right. You get and what I I'm saying? That's, right. That's yeah. like the key. That is the key to reading those guys. Yeah. It's because it's a myth doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, I think that's exactly what he would say. Lewis does a very similar thing, even though like Narnia is directly allegory. If you read his, the dedication to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I still read, this is one of the things I remember like most vividly from reading Narnia over the past few years, is he dedicates it to like, I don't know, it was a girl. And I don't know if it was his niece or just like somebody he knew. And I don't know what her name was, but it was like, you know, dedicated to Susie. Um, and it, I can't remember the line, but it's something to the effect of, I hope this book will be there for you when you're old enough to believe in fairy tales again. Mm. It's like a beautiful line. And his, like his play on is that like you believe them when you're young and you're going to lose it, but there's going to come a point in your life and you're going to believe in it again. And I hope this book is there for you when, like when you do. Yeah. And you know, that, it, it just takes me to my Thanksgiving break. Like there was a large portion where for a while, I mean, there was all the kids were home except for my brother um, starting to be a priest elsewhere. He wasn't able to get home. But we had two of my siblings who had their newlyweds. And so it was like the first time that them and their spouses stayed over at the house. And so we had everyone leave their rooms and we had like five people in the basement. The three girls were in the same room, like sleeping on air mattresses so that the newlyweds could have their own rooms and like, you know, stay together. And there was a large portion of the break where we sat around the table and we played a lot of Scrabble, but we would just sit around and talk and tell stories like old classic stories and hearing some of the stories that my dad would tell about being a newly married couple like he was telling one that I had never heard before where we had to stay in an apartment because our house wasn't built in Macon, Georgia and his office, he would sit on the wood floor and do his work sitting on the wood floor of this hotel that we were staying at because we had no furniture, we had no house and like the shenanigans that he got into and they had like a fold out table for his office desk and our cars constantly breaking down, like all the kids getting chicken pox and all of us hearing these legends that was like told almost removed from us so that we could super enjoy it. And I guess they were far enough in the past that they were certainly difficult times, but they were legends. But just the importance of like hearing those stories and some of them I've heard before, but coming home and like telling and retelling stories about each of us, like what an important part of our family tradition that is. Um, just sitting around and like hearing the legends of even of ourselves that we had never heard before. Like 
yeah, I mean, man, yeah. and that's a big so, part of Lord of the Rings too, is the the recording of all of these stories. You know, that's like that's Frodo's whole work when he gets back is to write it all down. You know. Oh, and that's Bilbo. That's the whole right. thing. It's he's writing this book. So the whole thing is this telling and retelling of the story. Um, and I mean, let's say you do that for another hundred years, then they do become lith. They do become like lore and legend. Mm-hmm. But to tell and retell those stories because of the truth that they contain, like, I mean, yeah. And then you look at the Genesis account and you look at the creation of scripture and the tradition of the church and it begins to make way more sense that you do look like even hagiography hey, where we've told and retold these stories. Um, they are true. Like maybe every yeah. detail of it isn't exactly true, but the myth and the legend behind it. Yeah. Like we're, our, our uh, conception of truth has gotten so narrow because of scientism, rationalism. We're like, you know, we went up to the North Pole and we didn't find Santa's workshop. Yeah, you know, like, dude, it's like an insane person. You know, you you just don't get it. (laughs) You don't get what we're talking about. It's boring. That's what I hate the most about it. Like, (laughs) I know Father de Gaulle is big thing. He loves talking about the cosmonaut that goes into space from Russia and says, "I looked for God when I was up in space, and I didn't see any like big (laughs) old guy." You're like, no, that's not what we're saying, right? yeah, it's just like in a lot of ways missing the point, which doesn't allow you to actually enjoy and to experience the story for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and oh. you know, th- this goes back to one of my favorite lines from Father Sywick ever. After we read, actually it was a it was a Christmas story. It was a short story he had us read in one, one of our classes. And the moral of the story to him was that people don't lose their faith because of a lack of evidence, but because of a lack of imagination. And I think that that is very true because like that cosmonaut formed in the scientific materialism of Soviet Russia took literally that God is this old man. You know, like he he had some image in his head from when he was a kid and from a failure of imagination was unable to like morph that conception into a more adult image of God, you know. Uh, because we we all have images like something like the word God. We can't fit what God actually is. There's no hope of ever because of by definition can't fit in our finite minds. We have to have some finite image, you know, which is the sacramental worldview. Uh, Christ is the image of the Father, and the Church is the sacrament of Christ, and all of these things that we you know the Eucharist to, like to be able to to be able to believe and have faith. Uh, which is like the prerequisite to even like understanding how revelation is possible, that God could become like speak in language we could understand or come to us in images we could actually see with our little eyes. Uh, You have to have an imagination. If you, if you're just like, I am literal robot man. And if it is not scientifically provable, I do not accept it. You're like, you lame It's been a while since we've had Connor robot voice. <laughs> I, I miss it. That's just pathetic. It. You're like, yeah. you're the worst. And Lewis hits this in Narnia where I can't remember. One of the girls becomes kind of like a half grown up where it's to your point, Rob, like she's too old to believe in fairy tales, but not old enough to believe in them. Where yep. she thinks that, things that are more important like makeup or clothes and dumb things you know rather than stories of bravery and heroism and good and evil and stuff like that yeah but to this point like you know the movie elf right will ferrell oh Oh, yeah. yeah great christmas movie and part of the greatness of it to me is that the end where everyone is singing that uh here come what is it here comes santa claus or no, he sees you when you sleep. You're sleeping or something like that. He sees you when you're sleeping. You he knows when you're it. awake. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Telling you why Santa Claus, Santa Claus is, is coming <laughs> to town. That that gets me misty every single time I watch it. Yeah. Same. And, Same. And it's because I'm like, yeah, let's believe in him, because why the hell not? Yeah, you know, adults well, to children. Let's you know what he's right there in Central Park. 
what's not to believe? He's delivering presents for God's sake. You <laughs> yeah, know? And in that movie, it's interesting. I've never really thought about it like this, but it does do an interesting thing where it brings myth into like into the secular culture, into the real world, and to watch how this mythical figure, aka Will Ferrell as a giant elf, <laughs> like he kind of disrupts everything, but in disrupting it and like making light of everything, he makes things better. Like people are actually able to enjoy them. People are able to I I guess get into the spirit of Christmas and believe things bigger than themselves. That's it's a beautiful movie, man. Yeah. Yeah. He's eating all the gum. He is. It's like the... it's like every man. Chesterton's every man. He just jumps yep. over the fence of everybody's little yep. stupid world and is like man alive. What did I say? Every man. Yeah, man alive. Yeah. Every man's a morality play from the Middle Ages that Oates yeah. made us read. Yeah. Man alive. Same. Yeah, he yep. comes in and he's just like everything is a game. Everything is fun, and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, we're alive." I forgot. Yeah. You know, life is is play. Like that's the point of it is play and rest and recreation not the things that we preoccupied ourselves that we do in order that we may do those things you know you you cultivate the land so you can eat and be merry you know and there's a the merry christmas the fact that we say merry christmas in english instead of happy christmas is just mm. i think that's good yeah we should be merry and the, the last year we talked about the teddy bear toss you remember that Oh, yeah. And I still, yeah. I, I think about that all the time. Like, yeah, right now it's more important. Our little hockey game and all the concessions that we're selling and, you know, jobs we're doing and things. You know what? Right now it's more important that we throw teddy bears. <laughs> and it's just like this relief into the mundane world that we, we do something kind of like extraordinary and absurd. Because the incarnation of God as a human baby is absurd. Mm -hmm. It's just absurd in the best possible way. And the, the story that Cywick, that we read for Cywick that he said about the imagination piece was this French short story of this guy who, when he was a kid, they had the, uh, the baby Jesus would put candy in their shoes at night on christmas eve and him and one of his school pals said we're going to stay they were like that age you know six or seven where they were going to stay up and see whether it was real and see if they could spy the baby jesus doing it and from the author's perspective he it's like christmas eve night they eat their big dinner they sing their songs they pray their prayers he goes to sleep. His parents and his older siblings go to midnight mass and he can hear the church bells calling for the Catholics to come to mass. In his mind, he's imagining the incense and his uh, parents at the communion rail receiving Jesus in the sacrament. And it's like this big kind of long descriptive version of what is going on in his imagination. <clears throat> and then he sees his, like he sees the door open and this figure come in and put the candy in his shoes and close the door. And then there's silence. And he sees it. He like understands it all of what it means, you know. And he goes to school after a break and his buddy is like, can you believe it? They lied to us, you know. It's all just a big lie. And then like it flashes forward years after that and the guy's become an author and this friend of his is he sees him in a pub and the guy's just bitter and cynical and has kind of had a uh, miserable life. And he realizes like that moment was kind of a, not a deciding moment, but sort of indicative of their paths. Like he just didn't have the imagination to see what was actually happening in that moment, you know. And that to me is like the sacramental, we talked about the sacramental worldview with the Cubs thing. That to me is the sacramental worldview. Do you have the imagination to see all of these things really at work? You know, the fact that we can recognize a picture of Jesus, even though he was never photographed. The fact that we all recognize Santa when he rides by on a bicycle or sits in a mall. You know, like these things are real, not in the sense of like that we're so preoccupied about realness, you know. 
why why I'm kind of like rooting not in not in a sense of like let's fool everybody let's fool all these kids these dumb kids and get it you know like lie to them so we can laugh at them it's like we're tr- we're initiating them into our mythology which is good yeah. you know well I think even I was thinking even like of like if you were to sell it to someone that was really skeptical to like even take that leap like even take a baby step and so i was telling Mets before we cast it i've been sick for the past like three days and me and my dad had like pretty much the same bug whatever was going on and so for like two and a half days we just sat around miserable and watched like either blue bloods the show or hallmark (laughs) christmas movies and uh but we watched it's a wonderful life at some point and the scene at the end, the very end scene of that always, that's one of the oh, few, yeah. like, I freaking cry in that, in that scene. And just the line there of, like, I don't even remember what it is, but um, no man is a failure who has friends. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's, that's true. But you could, like, you could argue that in, in worldly senses, but I feel like that's like a stepping stone to where we're at. Does that make sense? Because that's also a true statement um, that isn't necessarily like quantifiable either. But it's more like there's something less like even though that involved in this in the story there, it involves like this angel Clarence and all this stuff mm-hmm. going on. There's still something like less mythological about that story than using elf which i think is true right right but there's something still like there that we're talking about (laughs) yeah to me this this all goes back to everlasting man by um chesterton where he talks about how like there was sort of the two branches of human knowledge the myth the myth and philosophy and how mythology was like an account of everything through story which people didn't take literally like we people didn't really believe in the in the myths in the sense of like what we believe the, the way we believe in science the way we believe the earth revolves around the sun not the sun around the earth like we believe those things in a physical concrete sense but the the myths were stories of heroism and greed and defeat and victory and all that like it was a way of accounting for the things around them you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm geopolitical and personal and then you had the philosophers who accounted for things through pure reason you know what what can we know or what can we kind of apprehend through human knowledge and only christianity was the key to fit the lock of both like it's true in the sense that you can philosophically reflect on three persons in one god or two natures in one person you know like all all of the pieces of the story of christianity um, they allow for that kind of philosophical reflective, like serious intellectual investigation. But at the same time, it's a story, you know, and therefore it's like the, the perfect, not just um, intersection of humanity and divinity, but of mythology and philosophy. Where now this is, this is a myth <laughs> that is true in the philosophical sense, you know, and why Christmas, I think, is every year the most magical season because it's the most absurd story, but it's true. You know? That, yeah. That this really happened. Yeah. I, 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 may be, I may be getting in over my head here, but C.S. Lewis says the same thing in A Severe Mercy and then spells it out even more so until we have faces as well mm-hmm. where I, I think he talks about through his path of atheism philosophy was the thing that really I mean he was a philosopher mm-hmm. and when it came down to it it was Christianity and like Eastern religions some type of Buddhism that philosophically he thought had the most grounding but then he said when it came to like meeting the real world Christianity was the only one that had a combination of um, like living out that philosophy, whereas Buddhism sort of tended towards this removal from the actual material physical. And Christianity was the only one where the philosophy aligned with the actual material physical reality. 
which is why he gets into so much of the like mythology plus the sacrifice where that really meets and holds true. Like you said, that's the piece of the puzzle that it brings it all together. Um, yeah. And Christianity is, is the religion that does that. I mean, it's obviously more than a philosophy, but it does intersect in a real way where both the history and the physical act of the incarnation is true, but also the philosophy and the myth and the lore and the legend, it, it, artic- it articulates an even deeper truth about like the most important things in life. Like that line from It's a Wonderful Life, that's like the most true statement ever. And like you said, it, it could still be argued. And yeah, I mean... I don't know how difficult it would be, but it's not necessarily quantifiable or mathematically like you can't break it down necessarily, but it is true. And the use of that story helps to articulate and illustrate. It tells the story of how that is true. That's and that's what it needs. Like it's not something that can always be logically followed, even though sometimes it does. The story in and of itself tells the truth behind it. Um, well, because we wouldn't be satisfied with either. If it's just a story and it's not actually true, then great. So it's just a story we tell our children. And once you grow out of it, you're like, oh, that story's not even true. It's just something they told us so that we would behave ourselves or whatever. Or if it's just a truth and there's no story to it, if it's just like, oh, you know, everything's governed by electromagnetic forces and strong and weak nuclear forces and blah, 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 blah. We're like, okay, well... I guess I'll just wait to die then. You know, like that's not a good enough account of reality. We, we have to have both. It has to both be true yeah. in the sense of like vigorous intellectual investigation will yield true conclusions. And it has to be a good story. Yeah, you know, it has to, to inspire take, me. To take Karchi's line, that, that has to look like something and feel like something. And- yeah think like something yeah or even i was thinking back and i haven't read this book yet but when you were talking about uh father oaks's point on original sin was that like it's relentlessly true Mm -hmm. like in this lived experience of every person this is true Mm -hmm. and to use that as like an apologetic for it like, I don't think that's cheap. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. You know, just to call it out for what it is. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that's like his whole point or anything, but I remember you talking about that, Connor. Like mm-hmm. when he, when he was saying that in his, that's the book that just got published, right? On yeah, Grace. Posthumous published yeah. book. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's so intellectually confounding that we could be right. held responsible for a sin that we didn't commit. Yet it's it's just true. Like you look you look at us, and although it's inevitable that we will all fall from grace, and all of us will do wrong despite knowing what is right, you know, to say either there's no such thing as sin, or that we are irresponsible for our actions because it's not our fault, both of those things lead to really uh, sinister worldviews you know the only right worldview is that we are both responsible for the evil we do but that we are inevitably going to do it and that's that's really confounding because like if it if it isn't really our choice if we all have to choose evil because all of us do then how can we be held responsible we should all just get off the hook but if you let everybody off the hook then or if you pretend like we're angels and we're not really evil or we don't have this evil in us, you you end up with these systems of government and whatever that that ignore fundamental laws of human nature. That we, if we get absolute power, we tend to be corrupt absolutely, and and things like that, like that are obviously true in practice. But when you think of it in theory, you're like, how how is this the way it's set up? But original sin just describes the reality of the situation. That's why the myth of Genesis of a primordial fall by our first parents makes sense to us. Even if it wasn't like literally a f- the fruit of some tree, uh, literally in some garden, we all have this nostalgia for Eden where 
this isn't the case where we don't abuse our power as the sort of summit of creation and we don't use each other for our own selfish ends. We know that that's the ideal, but we all fall from it. So it's described in Genesis, read Genesis. And, that, and, and you don't have to be like, oh, the earth was created in seven days. Otherwise, the Bible is wrong. You just don't know how to read that kind of literature is what it yeah. is. Because imagine if Genesis or the whole of Scripture was written in like bullet point fact format and not in story. Like, nope, man sins. You'll continue to sin. But you do have free choice. You do have free will. But you're going to sin. And like, just take my word for it. <laughs> but instead, the story where we see it unfold, like it allows it to hit home in a different way that just stating fact like just purely the theoretical, logical conclusion of the story of Genesis would ha have no power to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't help but think one of my favorite stories about my dad that he told, it was back in the day that he told it. It was when I was a little bit younger, but he told a time when he was stuck in his house by himself late at night and his mom and dad were out. And, you know, I'm hearing this story from my dad, who I think is this larger than life, like demigod figure. And he starts talking about how panic stricken he was about being scared of the dark. And of course, he's a younger guy here. And I had never really heard a story like this from my dad. And he talked about patrolling each of the rooms and like looking underneath the sofas and opening up closets and like looking in, into them quickly and then shutting them and like shining flashlights and then going around and literally doing karate chops into the curtains like just in case human beings were hiding in the curtains or that's where the monsters were hidden and it was something that affected me like the way that I saw my dad and the way that I saw the family consequently and the way I saw myself because of that was this story of him being a little kid like kind of afraid of the dark and being totally human. Um, it allowed for it to hit home and like speak truths about my dad as the person that he was and the person that he is in a way that him saying, yeah, I was scared of the dark and I looked around and checked to see if there were any monsters. No, like he was Kung Fu chopping curtains <laughs> to see if he could hit monsters in the head. And like imagining my dad Kung Fu kicking around his living room, um, it just brought it closer to home in a way that only story, like only legend can do. And I will tell my nieces and nephews that story like up and down the ages. I will never forget that story. Mm -hmm. um, I remember yeah. standing in the sacristy one time before I was going to altar serve. And my pastor, God rest his soul, for the, basically the entire time I was a kid, was telling a story about when he was a kid when he got in trouble or something and he was running from someone and he said, you know, so I said, feet don't fail me now or something like that. And that line still sticks in my head that he was telling the sacristan or some, some other adult. And I'm just sitting there standing there as a spectator that they're not even paying attention to the fact that I'm listening to this, but I was just imagining my pastor, my priest, as a kid in trouble running from someone mm -hmm. and he was this old man and this priest that I basically had assumed just fell out of the sky and was always an old man and was always a priest and it it put some context to the story of like this is a human being uh, with a past and as like me in some ways you know it was the first time that it ever occurred to me that that person was a person and not mm -hmm. just whatever he was in my own world, you know? But this whole thing yeah. about stories, I've got this idea. I had, I've had this idea like ringing through my head for the last week to do, you know, last year I did the Via Crucis with my youth group. Um, yeah. I had them act out the crucifixion. So I have this idea to do, and I don't know if I have enough time to do it this year. I really want to. Maybe I'll do it next year. Uh, to act out the first two chapters of Luke in the church. So the, the 
priest Zechariah in the temple, in the vision of the angel Gabriel, to the to the birth of John the Baptist and the and the uh, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, the the soliloquy of Zechariah, the visitation, the annunciation, not in that order, um, and then the census. So like have Caesar come out call the census and then Mary and Joseph leave the church. And there's a, there's a park right across the street from our church that has a gazebo in it. And that's what we used for the tomb, uh, for the crucifixion on Good Friday. And I was thinking it would be a perfect, uh, manger scene and have Mary and Joseph leave the church. And then the shepherds come out and the angels announce the birth of Jesus in the, and just basically narrate it straight from the gospel of Luke. And then the shepherds leave. I think one of the shepherds says, let us go to Bethlehem to see these glad tidings or whatever. And just have the shepherds lead everyone out of the church over to the park to where Joseph and Mary and a real baby are with like hay or whatever to set it up to look like a manger and just sing Christmas carols, real ones. You know, like, oh, come all you faithful, hark the herald angels sing the first Noel. And um, just blanket the city with flyers, live Christmas play and Christmas carols in the park. To Because I don't have the impression that the people really understand the story. We're kind of running off of the fumes of cultural traditions like that. Like St. Francis did the first crash, partly because he wanted people to see what it was really like you know, in Bethlehem on that silent night, holy night. And I, the the Via Crucis to me was a proud moment because here we are acting out what really happened and somehow seeing it and hearing the words gets it in your, gets it in your bones, you know? So anyway, I have this idea, but it takes lots of work to execute with costumes and people memorizing the Magnificat and all that stuff. But I just have this feeling that it's really worth doing, telling the stories, making sure the stories keep going from generation to generation, um, drilling these things into our children, as the, as Deuteronomy says. Like, yeah. Don't let them forget it. It's enough enough talk about keep Christ in Christmas and Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's do something about it, you know? Let's make traditions and and tell the story because that's what all of those, those Christmas carols are just so beautiful and breaks my heart that we you know anytime we try to get around and sing them everybody kind of doesn't sing or is too cool to sing or or whatever dude i think it's a great idea you like it's really cool man i i actually like it a lot one from the plethora of hallmark christmas movies i've watched in the past three days (laughs) they all have like a tree lighting ceremony around the town I mean, just consistently and right. all of them. People want it, you know, in these like corny stories that everybody like won't admit to liking. Like you want that. There's yep. something to it. Um, but there is there's just something to that. If you, like, honestly, what struck me most when you were talking about that is like blanket the whole town with flyers and say like live Christmas play with Christmas carols. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seriously, like. That doesn't that doesn't happen. No. And, and yeah, like make a tradition where like if nothing else, people walk away from an image of like two real people with a real baby. Right. Um, and like if that's all, then that's something, you know, that's that's way different than like um, Jesus is the reason for the season. Yeah, it's way different. Or even just lit up little plastic people. And I mean, there's a lot, even just like Christ drawing a community together where people physically get around and sing like that is that's very special. And I also do think that the further removed from Christmas that Christmas gets from actual Jesus's actual birth, there is an emptiness that comes in and. I think during the holidays, people want those rituals like they want those celebrations and a simple invitation, like you don't have to do anything, just show up and we will provide everything. Uh, my sense is that people will jump at that. I, I think yeah, so too. 
at the end of the day, like you can watch the movie Elf as many times as you want to during the Christmas season, and that's not going to, <clears throat> even though like it is true, like we were talking about yeah. earlier, it's still not what people are seeking. Yeah, either well, it's I, pointing them towards yeah. something. It goes back to the myth has to be real. Yeah. Yeah, in form language, Elf is pretty far removed from the form. <laughs> that's that's yeah. Jesus, yeah. Right. But I don't know, there was something like just talking about the necessity of stories, and I guess I was just very struck by the fact that all of scripture is a story. And like hearing this what the story that you told about that priest and the story about my dad and looking at scripture in and of itself like it does help you to see the genesis of something, which I use that word intentionally. Like it helps you see the origin of something, where things come from. And so when you look at the nativity, like that story is told three, three different, two, no. Well, I guess yeah, there's Matthew three and Luke have various details. versions. Mm -hmm. Luke and then, well, I don't want to get into the details of the scripture. Because um, you don't know them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm Catholic, all right, <laughs> I'm going to play the Catholic card here. Um, that all those things, they tell us about the origin of where everything came from, a.k.a. it tells you about God. Like, when you hear that story about the priest and you hear him as a little kid, it helps you to see what he was like as a youngster, where he came from, like, who formed him, the things that formed him. And you look at the Genesis account, like all of that points to, to who God is. And then you look at the nativity account, like it points to very real characteristics of God, aka his radical love for us. And I think that's something that like I can tell you about God's radical love for us as much as until my, I'm blue in the face. Or I could tell you a story about how he created the heavens and the earth and like divided the sea and the land. And they became a little baby. That's exactly like how I feel, Mike. I, I feel like I'm sick of talking about it, and I just want to show you. You know, yeah. I want to show you what it looks like. Yeah, I think it's the best way. Which it makes a lot of sense from Cywick's homiletics class. Like he he loves real practical stories because the story tells you so much more than an explanation can. Like he wants to see that thing played out in reality. Because in a lot of ways, it gets to the essence of the message that you're trying to convey. Like the whole story of It's a Wonderful Life tells you that the beauty of friends in a way that that line kind of sums it up. And the nativity story, it tells you about God's love more than John saying God is love. Like, no, Jesus became a baby that almost got slaughtered and they had to flee to Egypt because God loves you that much. Now, like, watch it play out. This mm -hmm. is, we're talking about our creator. Like, this is where we came from. This is who we are. And so, you know, not to be, well, not to make too much of a jump, but when we forget about our stories and our origins, like, we do forget about who we are. And I think that's why I'm so grateful when I go home, we tell those stories. Like, this is the freaking messes, dude. My dad kung fu kicked a curtain. Like, <laughs> I did that too, you know, like in my own way. Um, yeah. Hey, man, dude. The nativity is an absurd story. It's ridiculous. Oaks, infinity, infinity dwindled to infancy. Yeah. I was listening to the thing that sparked this whole idea is I was listening to the Oh Hello's Christmas album. Do you know the Oh Hello's? Didn't you see I them do. live, Mike? Yeah, I saw them live. They have this amazing Christmas album. I can't recommend enough. I haven't heard it. But I started listening, I think, on Thanksgiving. And uh, no, it was a, the Tuesday before I was go driving up to a meeting. I was listening to it in the car and just picturing the whole thing. The angels singing, the baby in the manger. It was like making me weepy. And I think I'm just getting old or something. I, this was a disability I had for many years that I couldn't weep. But here I am in the car wiping tears off my I'm not deeply sobbing but just thinking about Christmas it just gets me man and I want to show people and the songs that we sing joy to the world the lord has come 
Damn. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember this, this story when you talked about that threshold of weeping being broken when you're watching Cardinal George's funeral Mm -hmm. in your room when you're doing STL over there. And then I went and saw Rocky and by myself. (laughs) It's been a a weepy year. (laughs) Every time I think about Rocky. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.